And I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verse 10 this morning. As you know, it's been our habit every four to five years to take a short time out of our regular sermon series to look at the vision of our church. And so that's what we're doing. Every week we're taking a different biblical text that unfolds one of the values of our vision as our church. And we can summarize that vision very simply. Our desire as a church is to transform this town of Flower Mound with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a gospel that brings about personal transformation community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal, not just here, but we believe throughout the Metroplex, throughout our country, indeed, even throughout the world. And we are now looking at the very last of these major topics, that of cultural renewal. We've been doing that for several weeks now. And what we've seen over those weeks is that we, as God's people, are called to engage our culture with the gospel. We are called to be able to understand the culture. We are called ultimately to shape that culture and to renew that culture. And one of the key areas in which we do engage the culture that we're going to be talking about today is that of our vocation, of our vocation. Now, when I use the word vocation, most people today tend to think of that as simply meaning your job. Your vocation is your job, that thing that, you know, you, you get hired by someone, you go out of doors, you out of your home, you go somewhere and you work for them, they pay you a salary, you come back home, and so on. But there's so much more to the concept of vocation. In fact, once you get a hold of it, you'll see that it's really one of the most exciting aspects of being a Christian. To give you an idea, uh, here's a, just a short little quote from Jean Vif, who is a Lutheran theologian who has written a lot on Martin Luther. You see, Martin Luther was one of the great reformers, in fact, the first of the great reformers of the Magisterial Reformation of the 16th century, and Luther was the one who reintroduced the biblical idea of vocation back into the church's vocabulary, back into the church's uh, practice. And so Gene Veith is writing this little book called God at Work. I'll quote it maybe a couple of more times this morning. And he says that when we understand a vocation, quote, it transfigures ordinary everyday life with the presence of God. That's how exciting the idea of vocation really is. So when we look at the word vocation, let's remember that the word comes from the Latin vocatio, and it simply means calling. So it's much more than just the job that you receive. It has to do with your calling. And we all have callings. We tend to think of a calling as, well, pastors are called, and maybe doctors and teachers you know, those are noble professions. Those are callings. But in reality, there's multiple callings, not just in work, but in multiple areas of life, in our work, in our family, in our church, in our country. You can have a calling as a citizen. You have a calling as a brother or as a sister, or as a son or as a daughter, as a father, or as a mother, or as a husband, or as a wife. All those family callings, in addition to the various callings that you might have that we might think of professionally and so on. But there are multiple callings across the board. And when we understand what vocation really is, and we understand its implications, then it can answer all sorts of questions in all those different areas. So, for example, in the area of work, knowing what the concept and the doctrine of vocation is means that we can answer questions like, what does it mean to be a Christian businessman or a Christian artist or a Christian lawyer or scientist or construction worker or whatever? How can I serve God in my work? Vocation helps us to answer that. How about if you have a dead-end job? 
What if your job isn't fulfilling? The idea of vocation helps us to address that. And how can I know what God is calling me to do? What is my vocation supposed to be? How can I know what I am supposed to do with my life? Vocation helps us to answer those questions. In the realm of family, we might ask the question, what does it mean to have a Christian family? How should I relate to my wife or to my husband? How should I relate to my kids or to my parents? All this is answered by the concept of vocation. When we think about government or society, we can ask the question, can a Christian be involved in politics? Do I always have to obey our rulers? And how can I function in a non-Christian or even in an anti-Christian culture? Again, vocation helps us to answer all that. And even as we come to the church, what about the relationship between pastors and lay people? Who does what? Again, vocation addresses all those different things. So today, we're not going to be able to answer every one of the last of those questions, but I think we'll be able to give you the foundation with which you can begin to address all of them. And to get a better handle on that, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I'm going to ask us to read starting in verse 1 so we can see the context. Now, you all know this passage. It's a very well-known passage. It's about the work of Christ. It's the transformative work of Christ, how God saves us. There's much here. We're not going to really be unpacking most of those things. We'll be mostly looking at verse 10. But let's hear now the word of God. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it's preached to us this morning. And as we said a moment ago, we'll be looking particularly at verse 10, and it should not be lost on you that this idea of vocation that we'll find in verse 10 comes after Paul discusses the gracious salvation which we have received from Jesus Christ. But as we look at this vocation in this verse and elsewhere, we see that ultimately it has to do with our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is going to define vocation. And so as we look at this passage, I want to see that relationship in three different dimensions. We're going to look at God through you, you apart from God, and God in you. God through you, you apart from God, and God in you. Those will be our three points this morning. So as we begin to get a handle on vocation, let's look at that first point, God through you. And let me turn to Luther. As I said, Luther was the key theologian who began restoring to the church the idea of vocation as we find it biblically. Luther says that when we sit down and pray for our daily bread, 
as Jesus commands us to do. We are, in, a, in fact, asking God to give us that daily bread, even though we recognize that there is a farmer who is growing the crops. There is then some truck driver who comes along and takes those crops to the grocer. There is a grocer who then sells it to us. There's you who has done some kind of employment in such way that has gained money with which you can buy the groceries from the grocer, and then you bring them home, and someone prepares them, and someone cooks them before they end up on your plate. And Luther says these things are not contradictory because the starting point for understanding how God, or rather what vocation is, is the recognition that God works through us. He makes use of human beings in order to accomplish his purposes. So even as we ask for our daily bread, for our food. And even as we thank God for him, we recognize that he has made use of all these different means along the way to bring that uh, that food to us. And that shouldn't surprise us when we understand the way it is that God rules. Now, whenever we talk about the rule of God, we got to understand that God rules in two realms, in the spiritual realm and in the earthly realm. Now, please don't confuse that with the way people popularly say that there is that which is religious and that which is secular. No such thing really exists. There is no secular apart from God. All things are under God's rule. It's much better to speak of the spiritual realm in which God rules and the earthly realm in which God rules. When we think of the spiritual realm in which God rules, we see God calling sinners like us into a life of faith. We see God ruling in our hearts, equipping us for everlasting life. He rules in the spiritual realm. But in the same way, God also rules in the earthly realm, ruling over everything that he has created. And in both of those realms, God is making use of means to carry out his will, to carry out his purposes. You can see that, for example, in the spiritual realm, right? God doesn't just zap people into faith. He uses means. He makes use of the word and sacraments and prayer. In fact, we call those three things the means of grace. They are the means by which God brings his grace to us, by which we grow in grace. Those things are tangible means. He has given us an institution, the church, full of people who bring that word. Even now as I'm preaching, this is God's love and care being shown to you, his grace being shown to you through the preaching of the word in a moment through the sacraments, through prayer and so on. As I said, God brings people together who make use of those means. So these are all the means that God is using to provide spiritual care to his children. That's true in the spiritual realm. And if it's true in the spiritual realm, it's also true in the earthly realm. God rules the earthly realm through means. When we talk about means in the earthly realm, he does it in three ways. First, he makes use of natural laws that he built into the creation, things like the law of gravity so that we know that certain things cause and effect all happen according to God's will as he makes use of those very laws that he hard-baked into creation. There's also the moral law that rules over the nations, even over those who don't know God as God, because we are told that God has written the moral law on every man's heart. So every human being already has that law implanted on their heart. We might suppress it, as Romans 1 says, and so on, but it is there, and God rules through the moral law. But lastly, God works in our society through this idea of vocation. God is the one who institutes things like families and work and organizations in our societies. All these institutions form the basis of our society. And what we see is that in all of them, God has given each and every one of us a particular 
role or a part to play in his vast design. God makes use of human beings in these different callings and these different vocations to carry out his rule in the earthly realm. He makes use of the natural law. He makes use of moral law. And he makes use of human beings living out and acting out their different vocations in order to enact his rule. So that is, if you will, the fundamental concept of the idea of vocation. God works through us. Not the only way. Because as I said, he makes use of the moral law, he makes use of the natural law, but he makes use of human beings to carry out his purposes through all their different callings. Now, once we begin to wrap our minds around that, there might be some questions that come to mind. How does that work? So let me unpack this idea just a little further about how it is that God works through us. In saying that God does indeed work through us, we are not saying that God surrenders his authority. God's authority does not have to be exercised only directly. It can be exercised immediately, that is, through a mediator. So, for example, we see again and again that God actually expresses his authority through the derivative authority that he gives certain vocations. Romans 13, verse 1 says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the idea is that God expresses his authority through these various vocations. So, for example, the fatherhood of God and the authority that comes with that is what stands behind that of human fathers. Also, God's authority to punish evil is what stands behind the civil authorities having been given the power of the sword to punish criminals and evildoers. The relationship that exists between Jesus and his bride, the church, is what stands behind the marriage relationship of husbands and wives. And the service which we are to render to Jesus is what ultimately stands behind the service that we are called to render to our employer. All those are found in Scripture. And it shows that God does not surrender his authority, but actually makes use of certain vocations who then he gives derivative authority to carry out his own. That's one of the implications that we want to understand. God does not surrender his authority just because he makes use of means. Also, the other thing is that God works even through those people who do not know him. He doesn't choose to work simply through Christians, but even through those who do not know him. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 45, we see God addressing Cyrus. Now, this is written 200 years before Cyrus even hit the world stage. But the prophet Isaiah is speaking about Cyrus, who was to be the emperor of the Persian Empire the one who would overthrow the Babylonian empire, who would bring God's people back out of exile in Babylon and return them to the promised land to fulfill the purposes that God had already determined and which he had prophesied. So this is the Cyrus of who's being spoken of here in Isaiah 45. In verse 1 it says, The Lord said to Cyrus, his chosen one. The word chosen there, by the way, is the word Christ, Messiah. His Messiah. This is meaning one whom he has chosen for a particular task. The Lord said to Cyrus, his chosen one, I have taken hold of your right hand to help you capture nations and remove kings from power. City gates will open for you. Not one will stay closed. 200 years before the rise of Cyrus, God is speaking through Isaiah and saying, I have chosen him. His empire will expand. Nothing will stop it. City gates will open. But it's for God's purposes. He makes that clear in verse 4. He says, Cyrus, you don't even know me. But I have called you by name and highly honored you because of Israel, my chosen servant. Only I am the Lord. There are no other gods. I have made you strong, though you don't know me. 
I do this so that everyone from one end of the world to the other may know that I am the Lord and that there is no other God. And so the success that Cyrus enjoyed 200 years after this was written was because God had determined it. And he says, I determined it, not ultimately for you. You don't even know me, but I'm the one who gave you the strength so that you would accomplish my purposes in my people all to my glory. So one of the things that we understand about vocation is that God works even through those who do not know him, even sometimes those who utterly reject him. And the third implication that we can say about vocation is that not only does God not work through those who do not know him, but the benefits that he gives to human beings go to even those who rebel against him. That is, God's providential care and his rule extends beyond the church, even to those who rebel against him. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, Your father who was in heaven makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So even as God works providentially through people, the benefits that God has is for all humankind, regardless of whether they're believers or not. So some of the, those are some of the key things that I think we want to uh, grab a hold of as we begin to understand how it is that God works through us. And once we begin to understand that, it changes the way that we look at our vocations and we begin to see that it's really not so much about what we're doing, but rather what God is doing in this world through our vocations, through my calling as a father and as a husband and as a son and as a brother and as a citizen of the U.S. And yes, as a pastor, your callings as parents, as children, as siblings, your callings in your different professions, in your different associations. When we begin to understand the extent of which uh, of how God is working through us, we begin to see it's more about what God is doing than what we are doing. In fact, we can begin to see that the love and the grace of God are expressed through those vocations in such a way that it is through other people that we receive God's love and grace. And then we, in turn as we live out our vocations biblically, express the love and grace of God to other people. He's using us to both give and to receive. But it is his, his work and he at work, we should say. I mentioned I was going to quote Gene Veith again, and his book is good, written, God at Work, because it's the idea that ultimately those vocations are not about our work, but his work through us. And here he's talking about Luther, and V says, Luther goes so far as to say that vocation is a mask of God. That is, God hides himself in the workplace, the family, the church, and the seemingly secular society. To speak of God being hidden is a way of describing his presence as when a child in the room is there, just not seen. To realize that the mundane activities that take up most of our lives, going to work, taking the kids to soccer practice, picking up a few things at the store, going to church, that these things are hiding places for God, can be a revelation in itself. Most people seek God in mystical experiences, spectacular miracles, and extraordinary acts that they have to do. But to find Him, to find God in vocation, brings him literally down to earth and makes us see how close he really is to us and transfigures everyday life. And that's exactly what vocation does. 
It enables us to see how God is right here, right now in our very midst, not just because we're in the middle of a worship service, but even as you go out into the so-called mundane world, in your everyday activities, there God is at work, fulfilling his purposes through you and through others around you. We can see that so clearly when we look at verse 10 of Ephesians 2. There is that call to vocation so clearly expressed by Paul. Paul says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all the things that I've been saying so far in vocation are found in this verse. For example, it's clear God has created us for an express purpose. He says it is to do good works. You want to know what your purpose in life is. God calls us to doing good works. Now, those good works entail loving others. Loving God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Don't get hung up on the idea of works. It's not saying that your works save you. This comes at the end of a passage that says you have been saved by God. But God has saved you from your inability to do good works, and he has saved you to being able to do these good works. So this is the purpose for which he created us. In fact, it makes it very clear that these are uh, are works that God had prepared beforehand for us to do. They were all part of his plan. He doesn't just leave it up to us and everybody just does whatever seems best. No, he has prepared us so that we would enact his plan, so that his purposes would come to fruition in the world. And it is with that express purpose that he created us. It says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for these things with the express purpose of doing what God has purposed. So when you look at verse 10, you have this uh, much, much perhaps broader view than you might have thought at first. All this in the end is because God has made us in order to do the things that he wants so that his purposes can be accomplished. And that means that it changes the way that we look at the things that we do. As I said, what is that purpose? It is ultimately to be able to love our God and to love our neighbor. And we've seen that at different points along the way in our vision series. But this idea of serving others, of serving people in our vocations is absolutely essential. Our vocations are the way that God shows love to us as we show love to other people. Think about that. Uh, Again, let's go back to Martin Luther, who wrote so much about this. He had something called the large catechism, similar to our catechisms. And in the large catechism, he said, in God's sight, it is actually faith that makes a person holy. It alone serves God, while our works serve people. And what he was addressing there is this common misconception that we talk about serving God, but we don't have to serve God. God doesn't need our help. In fact, that's made clear in uh, another little book called Luther on Vocation, written by theologian Gustav Wingren. He says, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. And isn't that the case? The idea is we don't serve God directly in the sense of bringing him his paper in the morning and fetching his slippers. He doesn't need anything from us. On the contrary, it is God who serves us. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So in vocation, our purpose is not to serve God, but to serve other people. And it is as we serve those people that we show love to them. And in so doing, God expresses his love and care through us. And that means that when you look at every one of your callings, 
your calling as a father or as a mother. As you care for these children, you are in fact expressing God's love and care for those children. As you work as an accountant or as a ditch digger, any one of those different things that you might be doing professionally for which somebody else might be paying you, you still are in that position expressing your love, expressing God's love and care for others, even as you show love to your neighbor. You might say, well, wait a minute. How do those things show love? How can I tell if I'm really serving my neighbor? The answer to that is very simple. When you look at the works that you're doing, good works, and I'll make this very simple, good works are actually those that help someone. Is that too simple? It's really as simple as that. Good works. What constitutes a good work? How do I really know that I'm serving my neighbor? Your good works actually have to help someone. They're not abstract ideals. They're things that you do in the real and messy world of every lay life to the point where you actually help someone. Luther, for example, was excoriating all those monks who in this day claim, in his day claimed to be doing good works when they remained locked away in their rooms in prayer and devotion. He was saying, you're not doing anything in there. Good works actually goes out into the real world and helps people. And the reason for that is because when we talk about loving our neighbor, it's a recognition that none of us is God, which means none of us is self-sufficient. We need what others bring to us. I need to have you serve me with your talents and your gifts through your vocations, and I will serve you with my gifts and my talents through my vocations. And as we do that, all working together, God meets our needs. And if we understand that, then we begin to see that there's no vocation that's holier than others. All these vocations are equal before God. So a pastor is no holier than a farmer or a shopkeeper or an engineer or a ditch digger. We read earlier in the service, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It's one of the doctrines that was recaptured in the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers, that we all have a role, we all have an a- access directly to Jesus We're all spiritually equal before Jesus. There's no hierarchy in that regard. And so every kind of work is a sacred calling to love your neighbor and to serve him. And you serve him by doing good works. So to wrap all of this up, what we see then is in vocation, is that there's this vast interchange of giving and receiving where I give you things based on my gifts and you serve me with your gifts. And through all this, God is at work. The nurse heals, the farmer grows food, the businessman provides goods and services, the hairstylist and the artist both provide beauty and so on and so on. And all these things happen because none of us is God, none of us is self-sufficient, and we need one another. So you can see then we don't want to abstract principles like love your neighbor. They are real and concrete expressions that we do through our vocations. And when we do that, God's purposes are being carried out in the world. Now, I want to jump to this next point. It's not very long, but it's so important, this idea of you apart from God, because I want to address the fact that, unfortunately, we often fail to love others as we ought. And we very often fail to serve them with our gifts and with our talents And if we turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, again, there's so much in this passage, but those first three verses talk about the fact that we are dead in our trespasses in and in our sins. And there's so much there that we can unpack, but we won't be doing that other than focusing on the fact that when you are spiritually dead because of your rebellion against God, because you reject God, because we pushed him away, as all of us have done 
in our natural sinful state, then one of the consequences of that is that we fail to do the good works that we see in verse 10. Remember, those good works where we are serving others and God is using that are the consequences, as we see in this passage, of being saved. And so when we find ourselves in those first three verses, before we come to know Christ, we are in fact failing to serve one another. And therefore that means that the love and the grace of God is not being shown as it ought to be. It becomes stymied in that regard. And when we look at our failures in vocation, all of us have them. Remember, even though we are now redeemed by Christ, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment, still we're not we're still sinners and we still fall. And when we do, it actually affects our ability to live out our vocations. And if you think about that, think about your own sins and failures. They're often expressed in relationship to those vocations. I have failed as a husband in the way that I spoke to my wife. I have failed and sinned as a father in not doing this or that with my children, right? It's always in the context of those vocations. So when we fall and when we sin, it is impacting directly our ability to fulfill what we've been called to in verse 10. I want to take just a brief moment to look at the fact that we fail in our vocations in two ways. And I'm saying this mostly so that we can look at ourselves and identify those things and be able to address them when when they happen. The first way in which we fail in our vocations is straightforward. It's when we become selfish and self-centered and simply don't love other people. Think about a ruthless businessman who doesn't care about anyone but only about the money he makes. That's a person who's selfish, who's self-centered, does not love other people. But the other way in which we fail to fulfill our vocation is when we're tempted to quit at our vocations. And we no longer want to continue with them. We tend to sometimes do that because our vocations become difficult. Sometimes you have a husband and a wife who are encountering trouble in their marriage and they're tempted to get a divorce rather than work through their problems because things have become difficult. Or you have an artist who's become frustrated. He becomes tempted to stop practicing his art because things have become difficult. But another reason why we often quit our vocation is not because they become difficult, but because we are no longer satisfied with them. No longer satisfied with them. So, for example, you might have the wife who, again, sees her husband turning into a couch potato or the husband who sees his wife's expanding uh, waistline, and he's no longer and she's no longer satisfied with that calling to be a husband or wife. Or you got the middle manager who gets frustrated at not having success, kind of just caught in the middle and not getting those promotions. Or that store clerk who's unhappy thinking he's in a dead-end job. They're not satisfied where they're at. The thing about this desire to quit is that in the end, it also is driven by a selfishness and a self-centeredness. Because it essentially says, God, I'm not happy with the calling that you have given me. I want something else. And the thing is that they really ultimately stem from our being unhappy with God's work in our lives and and from our failure to understand that vocation is, in fact, a calling. It's not a choice, right? How many of you choose your parents or your siblings or your kids? No, you don't choose those. You don't choose your nation. You don't choose your culture. And you might say, yeah, but I do get to pick in marriage. Well, to some extent, but it's really rather limited. Think about it. Who you marry is limited to those people whom God put in front of you. And then on top of that, that person has to say yes. 
So it's not really all up to you now, is it? Even your work, the things that you choose to do professionally are limited by who you are, who God made you to be. If you're not very good at math, for example, you're probably not going to be a very good accountant or a quantum physicist because God hasn't made you with those gifts and talents. So we fail very often in our vocations because we're not satisfied with them. And what we're really doing is saying, God, I'm angry with you. I'm unhappy. I'm displeased with the way you made me or that to which you've called me to be. Now, we don't have time to get into this, but God does not, when he calls us to a vocation, they don't have to be forever. Some are, and some ought to be, like the marriage relationship. But certain professions or certain things can change. But while you are in that position, look at the way that uh, Paul spoke to slaves, slaves of all people. And he talked to them about being content in that position. He said, if you can get out of it, get out of it. That's better. That's an understatement, isn't it? But get out of the slavery, but while you are there, here's how you serve your master in a way that brings glory and honor to God. And that's the attitude that we're being called to have. And as we wrap that up, I want us to look at our last point, which is recognizing that despite our selfishness and our failures to love, it's God who still loves even in spite of us and provides what he needs for his creation. And that's the last point, God in you. Because we're all born, according to verses 1 through 3 in our passage, apart from God, us apart from God. But what we need to be transformed and to become people who can, in fact, live out our vocation, these good works of verse 10, is we need to have God in us. And we'll start here by recognizing that even though we have rebelled against God, he still will overcome our lack of love with his love. And he still provides for his creation. Notice this. Take that ruthless owner of a big business that we talked about. He doesn't care about his customers. He doesn't care about his employees. The only thing he's concerned about is making money. That's a person who is sinful. That's a person who is lost. That is a person who is subject to the judgment of God. And yet, despite all of that, this ruthless business owner has to continue producing goods or services that benefit his customers. Otherwise, he's going to go out of business. So he has to be able to provide something that is of benefit to people, even though that's not his intent, even though he doesn't care about them. Even in his own self-centeredness, God uses him to carry out his purposes. I might also add that business owner has to employ other people, even though he doesn't care about them. It enables those people to make a living and to support their families. The point is that God uses us in our vocations, even despite our sin, for his own loving purposes. And it's because, ultimately, God is the one who overcomes our lack of love with his love. And the place that we especially see that is in our passage in verses 4 through 9. There we have what R.C. Sproul used to say correctly, are the two most important words in the Bible, but God. After laying out for us our fallenness and our brokenness and our inability to do anything that gets us out of that situation, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. In other words, God is loving you even when you're broken, even when you're a sinner, even when you're spiritually dead. You have done nothing to make yourself worthy of that love. And yet it says he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
and raised us, uh, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is in Jesus, then, that we have the one who does what we could not do. That's always the case. Jesus, who lives out all his vocations perfectly. He was the perfect son, the perfect uh, uh, husband, we might say, in the sense that he is married to his church. He is the perfect father in that he is the father of a new spiritual race, his people. He has been called to a mission. He is the chosen one, the Christ. And he fulfills all those obligations perfectly, always loving his neighbor. That is loving me and loving you. And because of that, because of what he does on the cross, Paul uses this language. He made us alive. Now, do you understand what he's saying? We were spiritually dead, and now we've been quickened. We've been enlivened. We've been resurrected spiritually. We have been made able to be different than we were before. And that means... That while we were still sinners, we did not want to love others. When we were still, as we read in verses 1 through 3, we were at one point dead to God. We were dead to our neighbors. We were dead to love. We were dead to carrying out God's purposes. But because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because he lived that perfect life of the one who does love God perfectly and does love his neighbor perfectly and did serve his neighbor perfectly, And because on the cross, he pays the penalty that we owe God for our failures. Because of all that, we are then enabled to become those who can live out our vocations in a way that brings glory and honor to God and good to our neighbor. It is through Jesus' work that we are enabled to love other people, to put it shortly. That's why uh, um, uh, John can say in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Your ability to carry out the vocations to which you have been called is only made possible through Jesus having carried out his vocation perfectly. And because he did what he did, now we're made alive and enabled to do what he calls us to do. And that means it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what your vocations are. God will use them no matter how sordid the task, no how. Uh, to use that old uh, Puritan language, how mean a task, which just means how common a task is. If you are doing it with the desire of obeying God and bringing glory to him, then he will see it as precious and he will use it for his purposes. I'm reminded of that young college student who had a work-study program with the college as part of her scholarship, and they had her in the cafeteria, and she was just washing dishes, cleaning off, you know, picking up the dirty dishes, washing them, and so on, and wondering... This is of no use. What am I doing here? This, this, this has no purpose. You know, I want to be doing something big for God. And the campus minister helped her to understand that that role there, that was very common, very mundane, very ordinary, was actually carrying out God's purposes. He helped her to understand, look out at all these young college students who are coming. They're away from home for the first time. They don't have anywhere where they can go and get a warm you know, a hot, warm meal that they could uh, eat and be strengthened and be encouraged and comforted and all those things that come from food. The cafeteria provides that, and you're being a part of that, and you're cleaning dishes, and you're getting all that. It gives them that nice environment where they can enjoy those things. And it helped her to see that even something like this is a way of showing love to those neighbors, to her fellow students, 
being able to carry out God's purposes of making people's lives better, showing grace to others. And that's the same for all of us. And you can see that expressed in something that at first seems enigmatic. As we wrap this up, take a look at verse 6. It tells us that not only did God make us alive, but he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when we think of that, we think of something future, perhaps, where we're going to be raised up and we're going to be in heaven. All that is true, but it's not talking about something in the past. It's talking about something that happened now. We've been made alive because of our union with Christ. We have been raised with him. We are not physically seated in the heavenly places. But even now, God works through our vocations and he rules through us. You see that amazing thing? The rule of God. Then we say this at the beginning is expressed through, yes, natural laws. Yes, the moral law, but even through vocations. And as God has redeemed us and changed us and transformed us with the work of Christ in our hearts, so now he rules through us as we extend his kingdom of love and grace to those around us. It's an, ordinary, it's an extraordinary thing because it lets us think, see that God works in the little things, that even these small things are great things in the eyes of God, whether it be washing dishes or buying groceries or going to work or driving the kids around or hanging out with friends or voting in an election or cleaning up at the church, all these seemingly mundane things are used by God. They are the realm in which God has chosen to work. The everyday life, God at work, as Gene Veith was saying. And with that, we're going to wrap up looking at a final quote from Gene Veith that talks about how all this shows us the wonder of God at work in us. He says, the doctrine of vocation, though it has to do with human work, is essentially about God's work and how God works in and through our lives. Finding our vocation is not just finding my life work or even finding out what God wants me to do. No, finding our vocation is largely a matter of finding where God is, a God who hides himself in our neighbors, in ourselves and in his world. Once we notice the hidden God and realize how he is at work, in the workplace, families, the community, and church, and when we realize the part that we play in his design, we have found our vocation. May God enable us to do that as we continue working to renew the culture, engage in the culture with what it is that God has called us to do. Let's pray.